Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk's executive producer, Rob Perra. On today's episode, Danny talks with Alex Morgan, Chief Markets Officer of the Rainforest Alliance. They discuss the potential impacts of the Rainforest Alliance's 2020 certification program and how it can improve the economic, social, and environmental conditions of smallholder farms. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Food Talk Live. You know, one of the best parts of my job is really getting to interview organizations that I truly admire. And and that's really what's happening today with the Rainforest Alliance. This is an organization I've known of practically my whole adult uh, life and and the work that they do to not only protect rainforests, but to to protect people and to make certification standards that really protect farmers and and the environment is really very inspiring to me. So today I, I get to chat with Alex Morgan, who is the chief markets officer at the Rainforest Alliance. He manages a global team to develop and implement sustainable sourcing practices across the agriculture and forestry sectors. Um, the Rainforest Alliance has recently released its new 2020 certification program, which is designed to deliver more value to the many people and businesses around the world that use the Rainforest Alliance certification as a really essential tool to support sustainable agriculture production and supply chains. And really, again, put a human face to these issues, to remind us all that it's people who protect the rainforest, that it's farmers who are trying to do the right thing. Um, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really a pleasure to have you. Great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Excited for the discussion. So I'm going back to how I originally started this podcast about a year and a half ago. And my first question really to get to know folks was to ask them their favorite food memory. And that changed a little bit over the last, you know, several months because of, of this, this uh, pandemic and all, all of us being in lockdown. So I, I want to get back to that. I think it's really the best way to get to know somebody. And, and, you know, if you could share your favorite food memory with me, that would be awesome. My favorite food memory. Well, I would say my favorite food supply chain memory, which is the, the thing that <laughs> popped into my brain is... Um, Early in my days in the Rainforest Alliance, probably in my third year or so with the organization, I went on a, a trip with a number of coffee roasters to Ethiopia. And we, at the time, we had a big project where we were working with um, the Japanese government and a number of other donors, including USAID. And we were working to protect the wild coffee forests of the world. So mm-hmm. if you're not familiar with the origins of coffee, the sort of... Um, I don't know, cliche story is that it's a goat herder from Ethiopia who uh, was taking an afternoon nap and the goats, he awoke to these just sort of frantic and um, excited goats who had been (laughs) munching on the local berries uh, in the forest. And they were, of course, caffeinated coffee cherries. Um, So coffee evolved from the the wild forest. It's just part of the understory of forests of Ethiopia. Uh, And at least Arabica coffee did. And we had a project to basically work with local communities to make sure that these wild forests um, that contained the, orig- the origins of coffee were protected. Right. And so we went out to the field there, and these forests were just miraculous. I mean, you had these, you know, 20-foot-wide trees, um, and interspersed in the understory was this kind of, you know, sparse-looking coffee, uh, and it's amongst the sort of wild well it is the wildest but it's amongst the sort of most unique um tasting coffee and just it has this 
incredible story that comes to life in these forests for these communities and ultimately in the cup of coffee when when and if you can actually access it. So that's one of my sort of strongest uh, food supply chain memories. That's really great. And Ethiopia, which I, I've just been to once, but they have such an incredible ritual around coffee. And that's also amazing. It's like, you know, this honoring and respecting of the crops that, that, that folks grow or protect, I think is so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, we see it in a lot of the crops and a lot of the sectors that we're working, whether it's coffee or it's tea, the tea culture in India, uh, the tea culture in Kenya, in China, et cetera. Um, in Ethiopia, you know, one of the other things that I was really blown away by was, you know, you're, you're sort of deep on the back roads of Ethiopia. You pop into a small little village and, um, you know, it's, they're, they're, uh, they're really rural villages in, in Africa, uh, in, in, in these areas. And you, you kind of go into a hut expecting to get a snack or something. And there's this beautiful, beautiful espresso maker and they're pouring incredible <laughs> espresso shots, you know, deep in the, in the, in the woods of Ethiopia. Yeah. It's all, it, it all, it all depends on what you value and what you, you really, you want to have every day. Um, so, You've really started an ambitious certification uh, program for 2020, and I'm wondering it, it, what you know what you can say about it. I know there's a lot about shared responsibility. I know there's a lot of of what you need companies to do. Could you describe it for us? Yeah, sure. So you know, I've I've been with the Rainforest Alliance for now about 13 years. Um, we we have as an organization had an agricultural certification program since the 90s. Uh, and in 20, one of the very first, one of the very yes, first. Yes, that's, that's right. Um, it, we actually started in bananas and then moved into coffee and have moved into other sectors from there. Um, and in 2018, we merged with another NGO, a Dutch organization called UTZ, UTZ. Mm-hmm. Um, that organization was working very closely in coffee, in cocoa, also in tea and a number of other crops. And there were a lot of comp, you know similarities between the, the approaches, but different angles, different lenses, different areas of specialty, and the you know the two organizations merged, came together, partly on the basis that with with the combined expertise, the combined power and strengths of the two organizations, we would actually have greater impact and greater scale um, sure. as, as an organization. So we have just launched the new certification program just uh, last week, which has been the result of. Hours and hours and hours of many hundreds of people's work, whether those are internal stakeholders and staff or that's, um, you know, independent experts that are part of our uh, standards committee or it's farmers themselves, groups of smallholders, etc. So the new certification program is really the idea behind it is to take the best of both worlds from from the two pre-merger organizations and really put out this new approach that's more innovative, more impactful, um, and, uh, you know, really kind of more broadly kind of driving the types of both social uh, and social and economic on one side, as well as environmental impact that we that we envision. So um, it has been published just this past week, but it won't go live in terms of implementation until really next year. Okay. Um, sort of the, the key concepts behind the, the new thinking um is one is a, a real focus on data. So mm-hmm. I like to joke, I don't actually usually say this too too broadly publicly, but I'm going to say <laughs> it today. I like to joke that we've we've had as, as Rainforest Alliance and, and as it's one of the world's greatest untapped databases. 
um, we have massive amounts of data, but it's not really been set up to drive the types of transformative change that we envision on the ground. Sure. Uh, and it's not been set up to drive the types of investments that we envision from the supply chain. So a push towards more data, a push towards more improvement. So instead of, you know, in the past, it's been a little bit more of a binary, you know, yes, certified, good, uh, no, not certified, bad. There still is, of course, a, you know, a passing approach to the certification model, but there's a much more sort of deep focus on continuous improvement and the transparency of that improvement. So you can see where if an investment's made over here with this coffee group uh, or this group of coffee farmers um, to, you know, let's say it's to drive replanting of native tree species in a, in a coffee uh, farm uh, and then there's another one over here. You can actually see the efficacy uh, of impact. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it's a higher level of, of investment that's needed, or maybe it's just a different type of investment that's needed. Um, so a real focus on that improvement and that transparency improvement. And you mentioned another sort of key aspect to the program, which is the shared responsibility approach. And yeah. um, I think one of the critiques about certification in general or certification schemes across the world has been, well, you're, you're kind of putting the burden of improvement of performance on the backs of farmers who already have um, um, too significant of a burden or too little of a share of equity in the supply chain. So the idea behind shared responsibility is to say, how do you, how do you more transparently share the, the burden of investment, of engagement, of improvement across the supply chain? And really the vision of, of our organization is that you know, every actor in the supply chain has a, has a greater share to play, um, whether that's a brand, it's a grocery retailer, it's a coffee retailer, it's a trader, importer, sure. exporter. Um, it might be just an intermediary um, or, you know, it could be the consumer. So how do we actually better engage the consumer in that kind of transparent sustainability journey? Because, of course, yeah. you know, in this non, non-binary, non-pass-fail, good-bad approach, the, the journey towards sustainability is is inevitably going to be uh, never-ending. So it's a continuous right. pathway. Well, I mean, you mentioned transparency. You've mentioned what, uh, you know, this idea of shared responsibility. I, I'm going to be honest. It, that all sounds great. Yeah. Getting, you know, the brands involved, the farmers involved, you know, traders, exporters, all of the middle folks who are part of, you know, how food gets to to our plates. That all sounds great, but how do you how do you do that? How do you enforce? I mean, I I know this isn't like an this is not a law, right? But how do you get people to take part in this kind of you know where yeah we we have a responsibility to do better? Yeah, so a few different ways. I mean, I think you know foundationally part of it will be through technology. So we've always had a, a traceability system which tracks a, a certified product that goes from the certificate holder, which could be a plantation, an estate, or a, a co-op or group of smallholders. So it tracks the product movement from that entity through the supply chain to the brand, ultimately. Um, but that traceability piece has been really about sort of the, the, the credibility or the integrity of the supply chain. And what it needs yeah. to be more about is not only the integrity of that supply chain, but the 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 movement and the two directional movement of supply chain information and farm impact data as well. So um, what we'll be doing is we, we've got um, this, I don't want to get too, too geeky too fast, but um, you know, looking at first mile traceability data and internal management system data. So that's really mm-hmm. 
the the flow of information. It could be around the payment of, of premiums or sustainability differentials. It could be the the tracking, recording, and transparency of the investments that are being made. You know, what we oftentimes see is a brand will make a commitment and then their supply chain partners will make investments through the supply chain in farmers to actually improve their practices. But you don't really get that transparent transparent view from either the brand or consumer level as to the levels of, of, um, of financial you know, investment that are being made, what the investments are being made in. Mm-hmm. The flow of, of cash to the individual farmer is another area that we're really going to be shining a spotlight on. So instead of just saying there's a premium paid to a group of farmers, how much is actually getting to the individual farmer and then how much is being invested in the group to be able to um, actually improve those practices over time. Yeah. I, I know one of the things that you're you're doing and or what you're calling is intelligent auditing. That's kind of what you're trying to get at here, right? Yeah. And, and, and you know, that gets to, you know, another kind of uh, gap or weakness in in what has historically been sort of this, the standardized certification model is an annual audit um, is you're not going to get a transparent enough view just with that once a year visit into what's yeah. going on on the ground, um, et cetera. So from a, from the auditing perspective, what we're looking at is risk-based auditing. So, you know, there are a number of key innovations in the auditing approach and what we call our assurance model, but risk-based uh, auditing is, you know, using data to actually inform which groups, which farms, which farmers are greatest risk. It could be on a high-risk activity like child labor. It right. could be something like uh, deforestation, depending upon the crop and depending upon the, the geography. Um, so, you know, we'll have these risk maps inter- internally inside the organization uh-huh. assessing risk on sort of the core themes. And then that will inform um, an in, uh, an in-house risk assessment of existing certifications and then also uh, of new certificates or new groups of farmers that are wanting to get certified. And then basically based on the risk level, it'll assess how deep the audit needs to go, what level of um, transparency and data needs to be flowing through the supply chain. So it's, it's using, you know, we've got incredible uh, technology in the world, uh, incredible geospatial data on where forests are threatened. You know, there's, other groups out there that are like WRI that are looking at um, forest risk mapping. And and so we're using existing data to actually inform the auditing process before the audit actually ever takes place. So there'll be assessments behind the scenes underway. Yeah, that's incredibly smart. And I mean, I think it is a good way to use data that's already being collected and combining it with what you've already collected over the years. I mean, and I, I also think that, you know, from what I remember, at least, that the Rainforest Alliance was using words like traceability and transparency long before they became these buzzwords that so many organizations, including my own, use today because you, you that's that's really your core sort of, you know, value system to make sure that there is traceability and transparency around all the things that are involved, whether it's, you know, the the destruction of the rainforest or the protection of the rainforest or, you know, how farmers are treated or whether there's child labor, those things didn't exist. Consumers weren't thinking about them in in any sort of way before the Rainforest Alliance. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, we've, we've had some pretty incredible visionaries uh, in the organization prior to my time and then that I've gotten, you know, the great privilege to work with um, over the years as well. Some folks who have, you know, you, you talk about 
sort of the buzzword around regenerative agriculture today. Uh, and, you know, thinking, thinking back to some of our work in, in the earlier days, you know, there's a lot of regenerative practice sort of caked into or built into the work that's been done in the agricultural standard um, on soil health and using cover crops um, and reducing down agrochemical usage, et cetera. Yeah. I, I'm also interested in your perspective on how companies have changed since the 1990s when the Rainforest Alliance started doing this work. And so yeah. I think there's been kind of this evolution, right, where companies were very resistant probably at the beginning. And then they sort of, you know, oh, well, this will make us look better kind of thing. And now you see companies really trying to do the right thing. And a lot of new companies, at least from my perspective, are starting off with transparency and traceability and equity in mind as they start their startups. You know, um, uh, you know, one that comes to mind is like Cooley Cooley and the use of Moringa. You know, Lisa Curtis really started out trying to do the right thing from the very beginning. And there are, you know, there are countless examples, but that's a, a very big evolution. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 so I actually started, you know, 13 years ago in almost a business development role of sorts. And so it was a lot of kind of knocking on doors to companies that had no interest in sustainability. They had no interest in traceability, transparency. And, uh, it, it's been a complete evolution, um, in terms of the way that companies respond, the level of depth and sophistication to their thinking, and beyond. And so, you know, I think what we've seen is it, it, it very much started as um, almost like a market differentiator. So how do I get the logo, the seal, the mark from whatever certification it may be on pack to outcompete my competitor brand on the store shelf or what it may be. Um, and now, you know, it's with some of the companies we work with, you know, they've got massive sustainability departments that are looking at, you know, key areas of innovation. They're looking at uh, closing living income gaps. They're looking at, um, you know, using technology to, uh, to remote sense when there is deforestation in an area. So it, it really is a, a complete shift. One of the things that I think has really driven this, this total change. Um, this is just a, this is really my own personal view on things. Um, is especially for large companies, they've seen th they're fully aware, they're fully, um, you know, realizing the impacts we're seeing today, as well as the massive scale of impacts we're likely to see very soon from climate change. And if you're sourcing, you know, crop X from 35 countries around the world at a really massive scale, the the writing's on the wall for your supply chain. If you don't act right. and you don't get more transparency in your supply chain and you don't actually implement sustainability practices because those farmers may not be there, those farms may not be there. So you have to ensure that there's a good livelihood for those farmers, that they've got, um, you know, the ability to mitigate and adapt to climate change, uh, that soils are protected, et cetera. So I think that has really driven a lot of the larger companies to act more robustly. Yeah. Um, and then, like you said, you know, a lot of newer companies coming in, you know, I think they're starting with transparency. They're starting with traceability. You know, it's it's one of the things that I think oftentimes gets a little bit lost, though, uh, is, you know, for our organization, transparency is kind of like a foundational building block um, and traceability is as well. So that it should then inform 
the the broader level of engagement, the broader investments that are needed to, you know, aid and assist farmers to actually improve those practices and get yeah. to a more sustainable level. Yeah, you, you said something very interesting about, um, you know, CSOs, these chief sustainability officers that are now at nearly every, I can't think of a company, a food company at least, or uh, that doesn't have a, a CSO. And, you know, that used to be sort of a, in just the same way that, you know, I think companies tried to to act like they were doing the right thing, they they would put this this CSO person in in office, and you know that person didn't do much of anything. But now that's that's changed drastically from at least my perspective. Those folks are very involved; they're very high level. They have a lot more power than they did five or ten years ago, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It used to be they were you know figuring out how they're going to start recycling programs in the cafeteria <laughs> in, the, in the office. Right. Um, and so it's like very, you know, basic 101. But now I, I completely agree. I mean, it's where a lot of sort of, you know, leading sustainability thinking and innovation is coming from. I think one of the one of the challenges that we still see is when sustainability isn't as um, neatly or as directly tied to procurement or sourcing as it right. needs to be. And, and that's where we see still with some large companies, things fall down is... Um, Unless they're they're able to say to a buyer whose bonus is driven by you know margins um, <laughs> that you know you've got to meet these sustainability criteria just as much as you've got to you know bring in raw material X or Y uh, until those are on equal playing field and level then you're going to continuously see kind of this tension or this tugging down of of sustainability performance coming from the sourcing of the procurement end as well. Absolutely. We talked to Paula Daniels yesterday from the Center for Good Food Purchasing and that procurement. I mean, we we talked about the power of procurement that is, you know, so significant, especially right now. I feel like you, you also mentioned something um, that I also you know thought was interesting. It's that companies are changing because they they see the writing on the wall. Right. They see climate change. But I guess I'm asking from your perspective, why did it take for things to get so bad <laughs> for these companies to wake up because if they had done what we wanted them to in the 1990s for example we'd be much farther ahead on climate change goals we wouldn't be seeing maybe we wouldn't be seeing the pandemics that you know sort of either this one or the ones that are you know sort of down the line uh honestly i think it's largely driven by you know the the shareholder model of you know dollars driving yeah. growth, driving decisions and strategic importance of, you know, whether it's sustainability or other decisions in, in large companies. Um, I, I still think we've got a huge ways to go. And, you know, I do think the engagement of financial institutions, especially within the last year, should uh, change sort of the dynamic of this. And it should yeah. put sustainability performance, climate adaptation mitigation on par it, it hasn't yet, but it needs to. And so, you know, I think a, a brighter spotlight needs to be shined on, you know, the, the Black Rocks and other financial institutions of the world that are making these these large pledges or commitments. How are they actually doing that? What To what standards? What are the criteria that they're going to actually measure performance, et cetera? And that's going to be ultimately where, um, you know, the, the, the proof is, is played out in terms of the actual company's performance and sustainability. Yeah, where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. I want to get back to this idea of collaboration that you sort of alluded to. You know, it's it's not just 
the farmers. It's not just the companies. It's it's governments for sure and policymakers, and it's other nonprofits who are involved in this space. And and I'm wondering, you know, how how you and the Rainforest Alliance tried to bring all those groups together. That that's a difficult challenge. Yeah, it, it definitely is a difficult challenge. Um, I think it, it it's it's kind of built into our name. I mean, we are an alliance, and I think it's also so it's you know it is a part of our DNA that we don't need to own everything or do everything, but we really should be working in partnership with with other organizations. Um, I think it also is built into this new shared responsibility approach where we we're we can't and we won't be able to do everything, but we're also saying indicating that in the future. Everybody in the supply chain, whether that's a, an actual supply chain actor or a government, has a role to play in, in this moving forward. You know, the, the partnering um, approach is one where I, I think more and more you're going to see NGOs like ours, but like, like others in, in the conservation space, in the social justice space, that are recognizing that, you know, even if there's a slight difference of opinion of how to do X or Y, um, in this one area that the broader vision is, is, is more aligned than we actually realize or admit. And there sure. needs to be more, more collaboration and, and really kind of deep partnership to get, to get to where we need to be. I think that's something Food Tank finds in its own work. You know, when we think about organizations that we're working with or, you know, policymakers, you know, there's a tendency to think, oh gosh, we're not going to agree on anything. But once you get into those conversations, you realize that you're more aligned than, than you thought. And I think it's, uh, we talk a lot about a, this a lot, this idea of being uncomfortable, you know, having some uncomfortable conversations. And, and that's the way you build these, you know, really different and uncommon collaborations that I think you're so good at. Yeah. And we, you know, I, I think we had an interesting conversation with, with one of our um, corporate clients, you know, two months ago, which was pretty enlightening, which is, you know, they and we both see that the best partnerships are the ones that are, you know, they're, they're almost a little uncomfortable at times because they're, yeah. they're pushing you to think about things differently and you're pushing them to think about things differently. And from that will come, you know, the ability to test and learn and then scale things down the road. Absolutely. So when, when the Rainforest Alliance started, this was just one of a few, I can't remember another sort of label that appeared on food at that time, but I'm sure there were others, but I, I, I can't remember one. And now you see this sort of proliferation of labels and pretty soon we'll have the, the regenerative organic certification label and, and some others that I can't remember as well. Do you think, I mean, I, I'm sure you get asked this all the time, are, is it confusing to consumers or is it helpful to consumers? I think it's, it's inevitably confusing to consumers, um, you know, especially when you look at research and look at how consumers generally make decisions. It's, you know, split second and, um, you know, there's something off the shelf that, right. that grabbed my attention. It might be a word, a color, um, could be something you saw on television or YouTube or whatever. Um, so I think it's, it's inevitably confusing, but I think, um, it doesn't mean that, you know, I mean, of course we're, we're not saying that we should, there should be, you know, more and more and more labels and programs, et cetera. But I think from, you know, startups on an issue or startups on, um, a certain type of supply chain, there comes innovation. So I, I don't think we're opposed to any kind of, you know, additional standards or approaches, I think the the key though is how do you go from, you know, it's kind of the breakdown on the consumer side from 
an interest in sustainability to, um, you know, then a, an engagement on sustainability to a purchase on sustainability and, um, then kind of the broader loyalty and that real investment in learning and, and whatnot. And so, you know, we're starting a new consumer engagement campaign where it's really trying to build a broader, you know, trust in what we're doing, but even some of our partners are doing around sustainability uh, and it's trust and engagement. So from those will come that sort of understanding you know, there's more consumers that are purchasing sustainably produced goods, but there's also more that are just inquiring and looking for them and asking questions. So I don't think that proliferation in itself is a bad thing. I think if it's proliferation without credibility, it's a bad thing. Um, and of course, that's partly inevitable, but that's why we engage in organizations that are also setting, setting standards for certification bodies like ICL and others. Right. And I think that credibility part has really, because of technology, has really been, you know, you, you can prove it more than you could in, you know, 1995, for example. One of the things that, that, that I'm involved in with a bunch of other uh, food system folks, including chefs and companies and, and advocates, is around trying to put more agrobiodiversity on people's plates and building sort of a supply chain tool that would help you know, avoid the quinoa problem again of the, the 1990s, early 2000s. How, how, how can we make sure that, you know, there's, there's a market for some of the products that the Rainforest Alliance certifies without destroying, you know, nutrition security and food security um, in, in, you know, the, the communities where that food is grown? Yeah, I mean... Uh, that's a, that's a tough one. <laughs> yes, um, I, I, you know, I think, you know, you're talking about platforms and the, the sort of the sharing of information. I think it's, it's important to not sort of be binary in our assessment of what's good or, or not. And sure. so that, that, that deals with an openness of the challenges. So, you know, it's like the child labor question in cocoa, it, you know, it's, commonly understood by many consumers that that is a challenge in parts of the world where they're growing cocoa. Um, and there's all sorts of different responses to that challenge. And to me, it, it, it doesn't mean, you know, that, that the answer is kind of like a, it's like through certification, we're, we're switching to this assess and address approach. If you just say, um, it's bad community X and you're out and you're no longer gaining access to markets, you know, it drives, it actually exacerbates the issue and it drives further poverty. And then right. you don't actually have any remediation. You don't actually address the underlying um, causes of the actual labor challenges. So to me, it's, it's, it's critical to kind of take a deeper view and really look at, yes, there's a lot of positive here. And yes, there are some real difficult challenges and then with that that education and information flow then you can and and the ability to recognize the the, the negative or the difficulties right. you then can make a more informed decision so i think it's about transparency and sharing of information but also doing so in a in a real open way of what the challenges are and what's being done to address those challenges yeah it's about being honest it's about understanding this you you have to I, you know, not knowing the answer, knowing that it's going to be very difficult to to move it forward. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask, you know, how COVID-19 is is affecting the farmers that the Rainforest Alliance works so closely with. I know, you know, a lot of indigenous communities have 
have already experienced a lot of decimation because of, of COVID-19. How, how are you all dealing with that right now? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty tragic um, across the board, I would say, in, in the areas that we're working. So um, whether it's smallholders or it's plantation, you know, estate yeah. type, larger farm type of uh, setting with hired labor, um, people aren't able to go to work. They're not able to, to pick or harvest the, the crop. You know, you've got smallholder farmers in um, cocoa and in uh, coffee, for instance, and, and even in tea that are just not able. They might have a hectare or two, you know, three or four acres, and they're not able in the harvest to actually find enough labor to pick the the crop to then be able to sell it and and generate the income that they need. So it's a real livelihood challenge for even those communities that are not directly, you know, impacted by the virus itself. Um, Our efforts, you know, in terms of like the, the shifts that we've made, um, you know, we've got some investments and engagements for some of the communities that have been hardest hit, um, providing some short-term funding, providing personal protective equipment, even access to training and trying to partner with others to get tools and resources out there. It's, it's always going to be insufficient, uh, to be honest with you. So it's, it's a matter of trying to um, help as best we can to shift and divert resources and to um, be kind of a trusted pathway for education and information also to get out to the communities that we're working with. And, and what's your advice for eaters to keep looking for your label, to look, keep looking for that little frog and make sure that you're buying those products? Because that's what will help keep those farmers who've been so fearly, severely affected by COVID-19 in business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, absolutely. I would say, you know, we do have a, a shop certified um, portal on our website you can use. Um, and, you know, again, just to, to take the time to learn more, to learn more about the the company that you're buying from, the supply chains that you're buying from, uh, what's going on on the ground, what the challenges are. And, you know, the more informed the consumer, the, the, the more engaged and the more impactful that he or she will be. Yeah. And I think consumers, especially right now, want to be more informed. They want to learn the story behind their food. They want to know how workers and farmers and the environment were treated. So um, for, for folks who need and want more information, they can go to rainforestalliance.org. Is there a dash in there? Uh, that uh, either, I need to, either way is okay. fine. They can also okay. go to ra.org as well. <laughs> ra.org is great. Any other resources you want to give out? Well, no. I mean, I, you know, I think that that's a good starting point. I think you can right. find information. You can find certified products. And, and you know, the, the only other sort of tip or advice is to be, don't be afraid to ask questions, whether it's at your grocery store, um, at a coffee shop. And, you know, if somebody says, oh, well, we've got a longstanding relationship with our supply chain X. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean for climate change, for water, for wildlife, for people, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah, Consumers have a a lot of responsibility uh, to not only, you know, vote with their dollar, but to, to make sure that they're, they're learning and, and uh, taking the responsibility to educate themselves. Alex, it's been so great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope uh, folks will join me on my next episode when I'll be talking to uh, Marco Gautieri, who uh, is a food system innovator out of Italy. Thanks so much, Alex. I, I hope you stay well. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Be well as well. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. 
Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.